Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Uh, Welcome back to the Psychology of Case Management podcast. In today's episode, we'll be thinking about couples' relationships and uh, brain injury. We know that when brain injury comes into our lives or into people's lives, there is often change afoot and um, it can be quite dramatic for individuals and obviously individuals who exist in a couple's setting. It's often a very emotional time for for them. It, of course, will depend on the extent of the brain injury, um, but we often see that sort of surviving what's happened to them uh, as a couple. So today we're going to be thinking a little bit about that and what we as personal injury professionals working with brain injury might need to think a little bit about. Today we've got Dr Giles Yates from Rippling Minds, clinical neuropsychologist, talking to us about this. This is a specialism for him. So um, I am really looking forward to chatting more um, about it and exploring this idea um, and the the impact. Um, So welcome Dr Yates. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you for having me. No, oh, not at all. It's, it's great to have you here. So I suppose the first question that I do try to ask people who join us on the podcast is kind of what got you into this work, really? Couples work and brain injury. It's, um, it's not a usual combination. So, so how did you get here? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it, it was kind of a stepwise process. So I always knew that I wanted to work uh, with survivors of brain injury, um, even prior to my clinical psychology training. Mm. And then when I when I was doing my clinical psychology training, I was interested in, as well as the brain injury side of things, family therapy and relationship-based approaches to psychotherapy. So I knew I wanted to combine the two. When I started doing kind of during and after qualification, when I started doing family-based work and family therapy-based work, I found it mm. really exciting and, and really really useful up to a point and the, the point where it, it stopped was when working with couples and working with heartbreak and working with disconnection and alienation and the need for kind of there's a need for like an intervention and approach to work that had a bit more emotional oomph to it to, to meet couples where they are at at a point of kind of crisis and, and, and heartbreak between them. So, so that I kind of like before thinking, you know, and, and as you said, kind of couple therapy and, and neurodivergence are not two things that go together naturally. So mm-hmm. it kind of it, it left me kind of thinking about what more could be done. I was also aware from colleagues that this was a really scary area to explore as part of neurorehabilitation. It was a kind of this known aspect of brain injury that. Um, there was personality change, there were relationship breakdowns, and people felt absolutely helpless as to what could be done. Mm-hmm. And when couples started to talk about it, the survival of the partner, I could just see my colleagues be really uncomfortable because they, they, you know, they, they had nothing to say. They didn't know what to say to, to offer in terms of support and resources. So at that point, I, I actually had a break. Uh, I think kind of, I, was, I worked a couple of years after qualifying. And then I had a break for a year, it took a, um, a year off from being a clinical psychologist and 
and this from different things. But I was kind of thinking about this, and when I came back to it, I was kind of convinced that this was the area I wanted to focus on, both in research and clinical practice, because no one else is doing it, and you know, then there needed to be a real application of a different range of ideas to see where we could get to with this. So I suppose those were kind of steps one and two. And then, mm-hmm. and then moving on from there, it was like, okay, what are the reasons? How do we understand why couples get to this point when one partner has a lesion in their brain? Mm-hmm. And so that took me down a kind of research route. And at the same time, I was thinking, what approaches are out there that may be suitable to use as brain injury survivors and their partners? So I started a bit of a hunt and, and went into this different literature, which is a couple therapy literature and that's a couple therapy literature you know which at the time was not focused on brain injury so it's a completely different world and there were kind of there there were and there really are kind of two main evidence-based approaches one is kind of behavioral focuses on skills and coping and communication patterns and then the other one is emotion focused couple therapy which is attachment based it's, it's got a lot of emotional and focuses on the, the, the dynamic and interaction between the couples. And, and that kind of pricked my ears up. And then, and then at this point, we're now at, um, I think it was 2010, and the emotion-focused couple therapy approach um, was developed in Canada. And the, the, the couple of key trainers had just started to come over to the UK in, that, in 2010 and start to do workshops and myself and the colleagues went along to one we were blown away by some of the 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 video of it in practice and again not it wasn't being used with survivors of brain injury uh frequently at that point but it just started being like this is ticking a lot of potential boxes and so then at that point i kind of signed up and i did i was in the first uk cohort to be trained in emotionally focused couples therapy all the way through the different stages of training so that was like 2011 to 2012-13 and then from seeing that then uh, as part of the training you have to do kind of you have to record your um, own therapy sessions and so I started trying it out and there was a key point I remember there's one key couple where I've been using a kind of systemic family therapy approach with them I got so far and then I tried out this EFT and then it was just the most profound change and the most profound moment of reconnection. And I and I used the video of that actually in my training because the couple was very kind to let me use that. And for this couple, they they embraced and kissed for the first time in 30 years. Oh um, my gosh. After, yeah, after after the husband's wow. brain injury. And yeah. it was just there, there was no ambiguity about this, like oh my god like this is something that could be profound wow powerful yeah. stuff yeah and then so then and then from 2013 to 2000 for the next kind of seven years it's just then been trying it out and and seeing who it does work for and who it doesn't work for and and like anything it's not a panacea but just becoming really more aware that there is an approach to supporting connection between couples that has, has just not been offered to couples um mm. before so so yeah so it, it just it was quite a, a very moving and profound journey actually 
yeah gosh well after a start like that you're not really going to look back look back and think oh i wonder if this is um helpful or not um you know gosh that's amazing i mean it's quite it's quite a robust training process isn't it to become a couples therapist and then to combine it and, and apply it within the the brain injury context it's not you know sort of I, I think a lot of people may have heard of sort of relate um and other counseling type approaches this is pretty in-depth stuff is it not yeah i mean this is a, a, a distinct approach to therapy shares with someone the therapy where it's very it's all based on you have nowhere to hide your training it, you record mm. everything and your supervisor literally goes through it second by second. Wow. Your skin feels and kind of timing and things like that. Mm. But interestingly, at the time that I was training in Canada itself, in Ottawa, there was a group using this approach with um, survivors of stroke with aphasia. So somebody mm. who happened to be a couple therapist and a speech and language therapist. So there's a small group applying it there. And my supervisor had a connection to that group, and we were kind of going on this journey together. And and it, yeah, it requires as many things um, having a foot in both camps, where you are on the one hand kind of talking to your couples therapy colleagues about what's unique about brain injury, like changes in empathy-related abilities, like emotion recognition and mentalizing, and uh, blunted kind of emotional bodily response to the suffering of someone else and things like that so you're kind of trying to say how the survivor is kind of different in a couple therapy situation to someone who's not had a brain injury mm, and then on the yeah. other hand your other foot is in the clinical neuropsychology rehab world kind of thing we need to look at the relationships and and not put survivors in front of a computer screen to to train their ability to recognize emotion or something like that, or even doing that. So we need to actually have the live relationships in the room and mm. see what we can do. So it's kind of, it was a very exciting, but very, yeah, very demanding, very kind of occupied all of my, uh, my working life around those years. And it's very, because it's a very intense approach. It's very draining. And I was doing it in the yes. NHS at the time. And being wow. couple, so it did take its toll at the time, sure. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I, I hadn't quite appreciated that myself. So um good to hear. And um, you began to sort of tell us a little bit about what the difference is um in couples work um for people within that brain injury context, um, relative to couples who have challenges and needs support um outside of the brain injury context could you um tell us a little bit more about that because i mean of course you talk about communication and attachment and and other you know similar issues but you know there is obviously clear difference what kind of features would you say exist then for, yeah. for couples uh, within that brain injury context yeah so i think there are some shared points and some unique points and they kind of mm that they're all kind of cross-connected with each other. So if we start with kind of any approach to kind of um, emotional change for, for a survival brain injury, it, it really needs to be in the moment and at a slow pace to really kind of let things be processed and sink, and sink in. And this, is, and this particular approach anyway has that focus. There's no requirement to do homework or anything like that. And, and of course, you know, if you set someone home that things are going to be forgotten or won't be, it's actually all everything that happens in the room 
So it's almost like from an altered state where there are a couple of therapists slowing everything down and using imagery and using the words of the partners to really go in the deep to the shared emotional experience. And, and in the couple's therapy approach, the idea is you're kind of changing around the emotional furniture of both partners by doing things in this particular way. And so the fact that it's slow and based on experience naturally lends itself to someone with like information processing difficulties, for example. Mm. And there's not a requirement of thinking in your head. It's about feeling. And it's about communication, but it's not a requirement for someone to assume what the other person is thinking, but the focus is on getting people to ask and check in what someone else is thinking and feeling and importantly mm-hmm. what they need. So it, 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 it kind of takes off the cognitive demands that some approaching therapy kind of put on a survivor before they get started. So that is useful. What I've come to find out that what you need to do more with survivors of brain injury compared to non-brain injury couples is the intervention is longer and the kind of follow-up phase is you know, very long. So you could create a lot of movement and change within um, a period of months, but getting that to be maintained requires kind of top-ups and reviews mm. and maybe for an indefinite period of time infrequently, but it also requires a lot of the non-injured partner they have to be the one that kind of cues in and invites a a positive nurturing response mm-hmm. um, of the survivor because because of the initiation difficulties or something like that the survivor may not do the even going through couple therapy the survivor may not be the one to start the process of reconnection reparation but with the right cue by the non-injured partner that that can all be kind of reactivated from the therapy work mm-hmm. and, and that. That then kind of is a big ask of the non-injured partner to say that yeah. you want your kind of empathic husband or wife back who you had before the accident or the stroke. And they, they may not come back to you without you opening the door, unlocking the, 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 the lock yourself. And for some, some partners can do that. But if mm. some partners themselves have had um, very difficult early relationship experiences or experiences mm. of abuse or something like that, that can be too big an ask. So I, I think for some people I've learned to um, identify who this approach is suitable for and who it's not. And that's a bit of a complicated kind of process. But um, that's mm. not too dissimilar from some of the, uh, the matching and the inclusion exclusion criteria used for some other couples anyway. Mm. Um, so, so those are what's unique. But then what's interesting about what shared and most of my clients are male you know the mm-hmm. majority of acquired brain survivors are male mm-hmm. and a lot of the male survivors have been their hand has been forced by the brain injury to have to communicate clearly from a point of vulnerability and invite their partners in to help them um, and invite them in closest when they're in their most kind of exposed, vulnerable place, as opposed to um, being at the top of their game or whatever field before they had the injury, but potentially quite distant at the top of their game. They're so autonomous and so skilled that actually they were never at home. They were in work the whole time. They, they assumed they knew everything about their partner. And so to be at a point of post-injury 
vulnerability and kind of dependency and actually I don't know help me or we're going to have to work on this together or I'm really scared and open up actually that could have been the first time that's ever happened in in the relationship at all and may really have been a wonderful thing were it to have happened before the brain injury but now the couple's kind of hands have been forced and so it's kind of you're getting these kind of blokes becoming like uber sensitive you know um empathic better communicators because they have to be now mm. if that makes sense so that's really interesting mm. as well yeah the demands on the the the, the, the non-brain injured uh, partner i can see it as being really intense and I'm, I'm just curious you said most of your clients are male clients who have the brain injury um yeah yeah i have and, male clients who and who are in heterosexual couples right. and have female partners i have worked with gay couples again male gay couples mm. um and i have a couple of clients a fewer clients who are female survivors right uh, Right, interesting. I was going to say, do, do, do you see a difference in the different sort of types of groups? Um, I was going to stick to sort of a simple sort of male-female difference mm. in terms of the male being the uh, brain injury survivor versus um, when the female is a brain injury survivor and how that may present itself differently, you know, within that couple relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think within obviously every couple is different, every person mm. is different. Um, sure. I suppose common common challenges common challenges with male survivors is getting to that safe point of vulnerability mm. and communicating i mean for example if, if someone has post-injury difficulties in recognizing emotions mm. um so they're they are worse at that than they were before or they have blunted feelings that it's harder to continue into their own feelings then where we often start with is a feeling of confusion, a point of confusion. Mm. And, and and often a common scenario is that the non-injured partner is seeing the their survivor partner withdraw and be less responsive to them. And it's assume mm. it's because the person doesn't care or has no interest in them. Whereas mm. breaking that down and opening that up, you're finding that the survivor is often very confused. Uh, and cares so much they paralyze themselves to the point they don't want to make anything worse so they just sit on the fence or close down and then in opening that up to kind of share with the partner that they're confused they don't want to make things worse keep going wrong they don't know what to do and then there's an invitation for the partner to start being clearer about what they need and how they can find each other and that, that's mm. quite an interesting process when mm. i think that the, the Female survivors that I've worked with have been more able to go to a, a point of communicating vulnerability and need of the other person. Mm. Yeah, now I can see that. You know, you often hear when uh, brain injury is involved in a sort of couple relationship, there are you know, sort of personality changes, emotional dysregulation that uh, brings out a different sort of communication style and, and um relating ability sort of i think i'm i think i read somewhere once that it was uh, someone described it as a bit like loving a stranger um mm. and the impact on the sort of physical relationship as well which is mm. you know massively important i'm just curious as to how 
you see and I suppose in your experience how these things sort of play out in in the room and how these these different sort of themes um come up and and are they you know does that begin to sort of very slightly begin to capture some of the the challenges that that couples have when brain injury is part of their life as well yeah no, that's a great question and I think this then taps into the research that I was involved in at the same mm-hmm. time trying to tease out what are the issues because when I looked at the literature again um the the brain injury literature is very individual focused and an individual framed so you hear accounts of the person having a personality change but mm-hmm. you don't hear what it's like for the beholder of the per- of the personality of the change personality, i.e., the partner who's witnessing. And this is this is an inherent problem in brain injury that it is focused on rightly focused on brains and what happens inside someone's skull, but um, it's not focused on what happens between people. And you know, there are mm-hmm. many there are many accounts of personality and mind that that would emphasize how that emerges between people rather than being isolated, you know, manifestations of lone brains disconnected from other people. So, for example, when you ask, in our research, when we ask couples about personality change, we heard very different things. We heard um, about two-way personality change. That mm, um, right. the non-Japana is not the person they were either. No. And actually to see your partner being different actually has a destabilizing effect on your own sense of self so you can mm-hmm. you can begin to see actually personality change is something that is like this kind of recognition of the other person is unfolding on itself for both partners in quite a profound and disturbing way so it's something that's happening to two people while one person has the lesion in one brain so it's mm-hmm. happening between people so that kind of brings us on actually what's going on between people. Mm. And, and then we also found out that with when there are dis- like, um, difficulties in recognising emotion or understanding other people's minds and perspectives of survivor, that did predict different aspects of relationship problems as rated by a manager partner. But it also predicted the tendency of the manager partner to withdraw or pull away and that makes sense, right? You know, if, if again, your love of the person who knew you more than anyone else um, before the the injury is, is not able to do that for you, it's painful and it hurts, and you can't just keep putting yourself out there and not getting that support back. And you have to pull away and numb out and close in on yourself to cope with that. But mm-hmm. the withdrawn, non-injured partner is then sending fewer cues about what they need to the survivor who arguably need greater cues than they ever did before. So again, we've got a vicious cycle between people. So the research helped me, and again, with the perspective of the couple perfect, is actually we need to stop thinking about a survivor's brain on its own, and then mm. the, the one-way impact on a partner. We think actually what's happening is a two-way process between people. And it's yeah. that stuff between people is, is is where the, the therapy approach focuses on. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I'd really like to learn a little bit more about the therapies uh, in this in this chat. But um, can I can I ask about the D word quickly? Um, divorce. Mm. Are, is there a high rate when 
brain injury is part of the equation? So the the, the data on that has changed over time. So mm. the first studies on divorce and separation were in the late 70s and early 80s, and they painted a really bleak picture, like 74 mm. to 90% rate of divorce yes. and separation. And then in the late 90s, in 97, you had Jeff Kreutzer in the States and Roger Wood in the UK, both doing studies with larger samples. And in both their studies, they didn't find any difference in post-brain injury couples' outcome compared to the national averages for the USA and the UK, respectively. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, you were hearing them being really um, optimistic and saying, actually, we didn't find any difference. It, 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 we can be less worried. And I remember sitting in on those and thinking, that doesn't fit for me. And a lot of mm-hmm. clinicians going, this isn't right. You know, couples are struggling. And then since then, in the last 10 years, you know, using adequately powered studies, the um, divorce and separation rates, they just vary across the study, across studies. And I think it depends on differences in sample characteristics. For example, a lot of studies are done on veterans and things like that. And there's other things going on. And but I think what you can take home is that um, divorce and separation are too broad a brush to, to mm-hmm. use as an outcome. You know, I think many couples do remain cohabiting, but they cohabit in absolute distress. Right. So, yeah, and you know, people, you know, a lot of this is problems behind closed doors, and maybe people stay together for the sake of the kids, or for maybe religious reasons, or financial or practical reasons, they can't separate, but there's no active relationship or connection between the couple. And I often work with couples in that situation. That, that makes perfect sense. There is something about the quality of the relationship. Um, rather than the absolute, it is a relationship or it's not that um, that we're really talking about here. And I can see that that we in the personal injury, brain injury world, we as case managers, as solicitors, as therapists, we we kind of need to pay attention to that a little bit. That's what I'm picking up. Um, that the couple dynamic is important in the work we need to do in terms of supporting, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do, which is rehabilitation. Um, supporting the rehabilitation is that is you know am I am I on the right lines you know here that that the couple the couple dynamic has impact on the outcomes potentially um, of of any rehab package definitely I think this is you know it's a it's a common point of omission in the blind spot mm-hmm. in in neurorehabilitation in um, brain injury related professions I, I think there's a general fetishization of independence and a, a neglect of interdependence why why de- you know, dare we rehabilitate love after brain injury <laughs> why, why not because we privilege love in all other aspects of our lives you know our literature our songs our poetry we all seek out connected it's hard it's hard for all of us but we all yearn and seek it out so why is that not the main goal in a rehab package or a, or a post-settlement package? Why is that not as important as living independently, functioning independently, you know? And, and given that, you know, when that breaks down, it's the couples that are saying, we need help with this. When someone's talking about this person is a stranger, they're saying something's gone horribly wrong between us. And, and why is that not acted upon? And it goes back to what I said at the beginning, that I think many 
clinicians feel kind of ill-equipped to deal with that or are not used to making a joint piece of work with both partners that focus on re rehabilitation. But yes, going back to the, the data, mm -hmm. the literature does show that, for example, there are studies in the 80s on um, stroke survivors that show that, say, for example, the depression of the stroke survivor influenced the depression of the partner. And the same and other studies show the reverse direction, that the depression of the partner predicted the depression of the stroke survivor. And we put all this learning together. Where does the depression start and end, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. It's, um, it was a couple of therapists that want your attention to the word depression. You depress a lever, you push down. And maybe depression is like a weight that just pushes down on both partners at the same time. It's this disconnection. You know, but again, the, the, the health economics argument of this, you know, the survivor of brain injury, you know, gets a, is a focus of, re, of a rehabilitation pathway and subsequent support. And then the heartbroken, disconnected, rejected, non-injured partner probably isn't part of that journey commonly. And then is probably having conversations about their distress in primary care with their GP mm. and it's being responded to via antidepressants. And if you put all those the separate healthcare costs of the distressed, non-injured partner and the survivor, and these things are being addressed in different bubbles compared to an approach that might work on the source of the distress and disconnection for both. You know, there's lots of arguments about why um, there's a lot to be gained by going into that, that point of disconnection between the survivor and partner itself as the main focus. Mm, yeah, yeah. And presumably that is the, some of the, I know you've touched on this a little bit earlier with the EFT, the emotion focus work, but the, the therapy is about fostering that sort of, that independence and understanding the that one affects the other and, and there's no sort of starter of that you know that it's it's um a sort of cycle almost and and the two are related and in, in equal parts maybe yeah definitely and there's a really nice phrase that uh, sue johnson is the creator of eft in as a general book she describes you mm -hmm. so one thing i noticed for example is that um you know i might do i might try a piece of um, adjustment, identity, kind of reconstruction work with a survivor and then one-to-one -one therapy. Yet, I've seen more profound working through of that process in couple therapy. Sue Johnson said that to someone in distress, a psychotherapist is a light bulb, but mm -hmm. their partner is a floodlit stadium in terms yeah. of significance and relevance. So, unfortunately, wow. that you know, their partner could, could suffer through the problem that the identified client is experiencing. But if they are brought on board as part of the therapy journey, you have so much more emotional meaning and significance and resonance mm. Uh, mm. With, with two partners going side by side. I think what's difficult is, is when that invitation to work that way kind of comes too late. And, you know, as part of a, a post-injury um kind of claim package that, that resources have been provided for the survivor but not for the partner and maybe you know some people have thought that mm. you know well they're not the they didn't have the accident or they're not having yes. their brain and, and yes. so there's been 
no one-to-one -one support provided for the, the partner or no, and no couples or family work provided and and after a period of time i think that heartbreak and just shock to, to such a point that people can't return from it sometimes yeah. so i think it, it's having those opportunities offered in a timely way and of course many many um many couples sometimes may not want to work on things together and want to work on them separately but I, the way I've seen it, and as I've gone into that, that not, not enough people are given the option. And when people have actually sorted out, it hasn't been offered to them. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that is something that we do hear in the litigation world, um, that the clients, uh, you know, funding is available and for the client and not their the, the brain-injured client and not uh, other family members, and in this case, sort of partners, and how that, based on what you're saying, can be pretty detrimental and that's something to certainly bear in mind as personal injury professionals and understanding if we are trying to maximize outcomes rehab outcomes then you know maybe we're potentially missing a trick by not including the floodlight as you described it um you know opportunity so in terms of sort of our audience is largely almost entirely i would say um non-psychologists and uh, solicitors, case managers from varied backgrounds. When we're thinking about clients who adult clients who have a brain injury and they have a partner who um, is present in whichever, whatever way and whatever role they have, do you have sort of three almost practical tips that we can think about um, as your as an audience in the personal injury world where we can make try and make a difference? What is it that you think we should be Maybe practically thinking about when working with couples where there is a brain injury. So I think step one is open up the conversation with both partners about the impact of brain injury on the relationship, on the mental well-being of survivor and partner, mm -hmm. and the needs that are there for both, and that the the needs are interconnected. They can't be disentangle from each other and I think so finding information is key so mm -hmm. there is information out there so for example Headway does a great series of leaflets so I'm, I'm self-promoting because I help them write them but I think they're great <laughs> leaflets on, uh, on relationships after brain injury sexuality after brain injury you just download those leaflets from the Headway website national website um, mm -hmm. and, and also um, I've done some podcasts with them and also with the different stroke charity we did a whole series of videos on their YouTube channel on relationships and sex after a stroke and things like that. So it's just, you know, again, the survivors and partners themselves may not expect to think about relationship or intimacy to be part of the brain injury conversation. Some people do and then are just made that the professionals aren't with them on that. But a lot of people you know, that journey from kind of inpatient to post-acute and with all the languages about one person's brain and not what's happening in between. And these difficulties, mm -hmm. these strains um, on the relationship and the distress of survivor and partner, the social isolation from partners and the immediate family, all that stuff has been shown to increase in years two to five post-injury. You know, mm -hmm. often when that, that kind of more medicalized thrust of interventions died out and and, and people may not make the connection that this is shared experience for many, many couples. Mm. And this is part of the story. 
and should be part and should fall within the scope of intervention. So I think opening up that conversation that, yeah, this is part of it. This is part of it and this is a long game and we need different people to come in. So I think that's the finding out information, getting those uh, leaflets and there's some great, you know, um, there's some great accounts of people who've gone through this. So uh, James Cracknell and his wife at the time have done some great interviews about the impact of his brain injury on their relationship. There's an amazing book by a really powerful and honest book by a, a wife of a brain injury survivor called uh, Where is the Mango Princess? And she was just so raw in how she described how it was for her. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's just finding these conversations. So that's, the, that's one, but opening up, getting that information. Um, I think a second challenge, and then, and then just, yeah, um, don't, as professionals, don't compartmentalize yourself. You may be the ones that need to put all of these pieces of the jigsaw side by side and show how they're connected in the conversations you're having, in the ways you're prioritizing the identification of need and access of help. Think about what, what professionals need to come in. So most of the audience are, are non-psychologists, even in my own profession, in clinical neuropsychology, um, mm. historically, we have not been good at working on relationships. Mm. That's, that's, that's changing radically in the last 10 years. You know, but it's definitely, it, it's still kind of quite common for the psychologist to work with the survivor on their own and do an individual focus intervention, maybe offer some adjunctive sessions with relatives. But it's, it's less common. Psychologists themselves have worried about having the skills to do the live work with the couple. So that, that may all feed into this kind of compartmentalization or blind spots about, you know, what's happening between the survivor and the partner. Mm. And I think the final thing, my third point is, sometimes professionals can see partners as, as adversaries, um, as kind of enemies or not, maybe if the partner is distressed, and, and is vocalizing that with a very potent voice. I can see a partner versus survivor, and you know mm. the partner is getting in the way of the rehab of the survivor. And that's hard to understand, but often that's that that that's a limitation in how the distress of both survivors and partners have been looked at. And I think it's just not seeing that they're interconnected. Mm. And it, I think that's probably where psychology for example is helpful mm-hmm. um and you know, a good case manager can see how there's just different sides of the same story here mm-hmm. um and how do we get back on to a similar page to work forward together yeah no that's really helpful when you as a psychologist with my psychology hat on I'm thinking gosh I, I think you're right about how it is quite hard to I guess open up the conversation and think about this sense of interdependence um, and it it can feel a bit scary as a non uh well as a as a professional working in 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 the world that we do work in this medico legal world and how for some reason it sometimes feels like the skills we do have don't always fit the couple picture somehow and i am well i guess that's another podcast for another time perhaps um but uh but but i guess what you're you're basically you're 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 giving us permission and saying that it's an important thing to look at and if you're feeling funny about it maybe that's a sign that it needs some address in some way shape or form 
and that by opening up that discussion as a discussion between two people and what's going on in that space between those two people is assessment information it's data it's valuable information that can be used particularly if we are saying that um it, it can have an impact on rehabilitation which is what we're all obviously trying to do the best we can with i agree i think one useful it's a very triggering thing to do mm. but but one one thing that is useful if you if you're brave enough to do it is to say to yourself if right now on my way home or god forbid something would happen to me or my partner mm. what would this be like for me and then going forward you know, mm-hmm. and what would it be like for me or them if all the support was given to one of us and not the other? How yeah. how would then I or they respond to that? And I think it just helps that kind of human connection. Um, mm-hmm. Some people just stress quietens down and goes in on itself and mm-hmm. they're not around, you can't get hold of them. Other people just stress goes loud and the, the volume is cranked up and... and you know, people protest and getting that, and, and that can feel really overwhelming. You know, yeah. So I think it's tracking that, and it's mm-hmm. worth saying though. This again, the thing this, this kind of whole work gets caught between two worlds. The flip side is that in the couple, the non-brain injury couple therapy world, you mentioned relate before. Mm. Um, generic couple therapists often lack the knowledge of brain injury and mm. assume that a survivor. You know, can just do everything anyone else is. You know, if the survivor is not empathizing, there'll be lots of kind of protracted kind of theorizing about why that's the case, and people won't assume that they've just lost the building blocks for hardware to do that now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so I've seen a lot of people try the relate route, and either the relate process of either just says, I can't work with this, this is way beyond my skill set, mm-hmm. or less helpfully, not identify what's different and try things. And it, and more harm than good and yeah. it's left uh, um, both the survivors especially the non Japan feel even more alone that they, they, they didn't get it they don't know what it uniquely how uniquely painful it is to be um, mm. a relative of a brain injury survivor so it really kind of calls for joining connecting conversations and expertise and to kind of increase awareness in both communities I think so the brain injury community and the couple therapy relationship counsellor community as well, which has been something we've been trying to do over the last two years as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. So maybe we could round up today's conversation with a sort of uh, maybe a summary of the key messages um, from today for our audience. What would you say those are? Let's start with an injury in one person's brain does not suffer stop at their skull does not mm. stop at their lives you know that that image that's been used by many many people that's a great one of the 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 damage to one person's brain is a boulder that gets thrown into a lake but the ripples that go out pass through many people many mm. relationships and the partner is in the nuclear fallout zone they're mm. the ones that get hit person maybe hit in ways that are not experienced by wider members of family and friends mm. And so, you know, people have used the term of the brain injured couple, the brain injured family. And I think, you know, that that's powerfully your attention that, you know, there is not just one client. There may be two when we bring in child relatives, yes. three, four, five, the wider family. And to, to take, view that 
few things in that relationship way. So when you're then putting the spotlight on who needs help and what kind of help, don't focus that spotlight in too narrowly and miss everyone else in the shadows. I think that's one bit. Mm. And, and then moving on from that, we're kind of used to assuming that rehab and support are for certain purposes but not for others. And if we pass that with what we value in life generally, there's a mismatch there. We value love. We value supporting someone who's heartbroken and we know how difficult, how painful that can be. We value connection between people and we know that physical health, individual psychological well-being comes out of secure relationships. So what, why is that not part of rehab, not part mm. of what we do? You know, yeah. so it's, it's again the, the, you know, stepping out of the box and thinking about what rehab looks like, what ongoing support looks like. And then I suppose the final bit is unfortunately, there aren't many specialists currently at the minute who have that brain injury and couples relationship hat on. So it may be a question of joining dots between different agencies, different support and getting people in and that kind of interdisciplinary conversations of mm. thinking about relationships support, be it accessing the right and the information that you can get from the, the internet easily or sourcing out specialist providers, but linking the brain injury perspective and the couple perspective and, and letting those conversations come together. I think that's uh, the important way to take things forward. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And actually, you, you talked about rippling. I know Rippling Minds is the name of your company and um, you may well be one of the agencies that our audience could consider coming to for that support, for that extra bit. Could you tell us a little bit about Rippling Minds, perhaps? Uh, yes, well, I, I, it, that is my focus. And my focus, if you mm -hmm. check out RipplingMinds.com, you'll see the different kinds of relationships that I support, um, with the couple's work being a key bit of that work. But also on there, you'll find resources, all of the resources I've mentioned for survivors and their partners. They can be downloaded access from there. And I do a lot of partnership work with first sector organizations to try and get this stuff out there, get these conversations out there at the national and international level. So lots of goodies to find by checking out rippling.minds.com. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I'll put all your details on our show notes along with um, the Headway resources that you mentioned and the book, Where is the Mango Princess? And if there's anything else that you feel ought to go on there, do let us know. But Dr. Yates, thank you so much for um, sharing your wisdom and your experience on this um, and shedding some light on, on this important but um uh, scary dare i say um sort of topic um and thinking about rehabilitation in a different way thinking about the impact on the couple i guess the the, the clue is in the name really that it's a couple um that there are two people involved and uh that 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 could be that sh should and could be part of the quality of life rehabilitation that we as person personal injury professionals need to really think about with our brain injured clients so once again, thank you very much, um, Dr. Yates. And um, thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Before you go, 
If you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 